Well, thank you for joining us. This is the third and final week of our annual Super Summer series called Ask uh, Anything. And so if you're a guest today, a little disclaimer, it's a totally different style than we normally would teach in. We normally teach through books of the Bible or through paragraphs or sections of scripture. And so not only is this a topical series, uh, there are multiple topics in every sermon. And so we literally just say, hey, you can submit questions and we'll stand up and answer them, whatever they are, whatever random they are, however difficult they are. And uh, one thing that is consistent though, year after year, is there are always exponentially more questions that get turned in uh, then we have time to answer, and that's going to be true as well. We even added, uh, when we first started doing this, it was only two messages, and then over the years we've had to grow it to three, and we still can't get to all the messages. Now, let me just off, offer a second disclaimer. Uh, for If you've got little ones in the room today, uh, we're going to tackle some tough topics and some tough conversations, so I just want to give you a heads up about that so you can decide what's the best response if you've got little ones uh, in the room today. So... Even though it's a topical uh, series and and even multiple topics within every single message, we always want to start with a foundational passage to ground ourselves in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture for every single answer that we have. And so if you want to turn there with me, the starting point passage this morning, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning as our starting point. And today, uh, by God's grace, if the Lord's willing, uh, if you're from the south, if the creek don't rise... Uh, We're going to try and get through four questions today. I don't think we've got through four in any of these, but we're going to do our best to get through four, all right? So the first question uh, that we're going to answer that was submitted uh, is this. This is kind of a mouthful, okay, all right? So how do we engage or relate to people we interact with uh, who do not hold to biblical teaching regarding sexuality, gender, or all kinds of hot-button cultural issues? Now, full disclosure, uh, that exact question was not submitted However, there were multiple questions that were submitted uh, around that same kind of issue. How do I wrestle with this in my employment? How do I wrestle with this with people in my family who we disagree on this? Some profess Christ, some don't. How do I engage with friends and who have different views on this than me? And so there were all kinds of questions related to that. And so we just kind of created an umbrella question uh, that we could tuck all those uh, answers on. And so uh, one person worded this way, which I think is great. He said, uh, how do we navigate the tension to become all things to all men that we might win some, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 9, while at the same time holding fast to biblical convictions? How do you live in the tension of those two truths and get it right uh, all the time? Now, most of the questions that came in, like how do I relate to people, you know, we disagree on this, most of them uh, were related to uh, questions on sexuality, gender, uh, and interestingly, There were no questions submitted about what does the Bible teach regarding these issues. Now, I have a theory of that. A couple months ago, we taught a whole three-week series called God's Good Design for Sex and Sexuality, and we did such an incredible job of teaching that. No one has any questions what the Bible teaches, right? That's what I told our staff is probably true. But we did get lots of questions, not what does the Bible teach about sex and sexuality and those things, But how do we take that teaching and interact with people in a culture who doesn't agree with that Christian uh, worldview? What does that look like to live faithfully, but also uh, be winsome and and build relationships and share Christ through all those things? Now, foundational statement, if you weren't here as a part of that series that we taught on sex and sexuality called God's Good Design, let me give you a recap uh, statement so some of what we'll teach will uh, make sense today. So here's what we taught, uh, that sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed uh, in the context of biblical marriage, 
And biblical marriage is defined both in the creation account and reaffirmed by Jesus later uh, of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, right? Anything outside of that, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual in nature, anything outside of that design is outside of God's design for sex and sexuality. And the reason we would uphold that standard is this is what we deeply believe and have deep convictions about. That God's design for, for life in every area, sexuality, relationships, money, fill in the blank, in every single area, God's design for life leads to human flourishing and a departure from God's design leads to brokenness. That's why we uphold that standard. We believe it leads to human flourishing and a departure from God's design in any area of life leads to brokenness. And even I think Christians and non-Christians would agree that when it comes to sex and sexuality in our culture, there is a tremendous amount of brokenness being played out in the culture around us. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we hold fast these convictions, yet build relationships with people who uh, disagree with us? Now, let me make a statement uh, that may sound off topic, but I promise you it's going to be uh, on topic. And I think this is incredibly uh, important to understand. When, when you think about the Bible, because here's what's happened. These really specific scenario questions kind of come in. And what people are saying is, hey, I, I've looked in the Bible, or maybe I haven't looked in the Bible, but I'm assuming you're the pastor, so you've looked in the Bible before, right? And I have. So we'll share that. So I know the general teaching on sex or sexuality, but in this specific scenario, I don't know what it looks like to take those truths and live out of them in this very specific situation. So let me give you an important statement that would apply to this teaching, but in general as a whole, all right? So it's super important. So if you're listening, say amen. amen. The Bible is comprehensive in wisdom, but it is not exhaustive in application. The Bible is comprehensive in that it offers wisdom on a broad range of subjects, but it's not exhaustive in how to apply that general wisdom in every single scenario. Here's an easy way to illustrate that over the years. Uh, the Bible talks about, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of a person in their finances diversifying their assets. The Bible actually speaks to that. It does not tell you to pick stock A, B, or C. All right, so it's comprehensive in wisdom, but it's not exhaustive uh, in regards to application. So that's why people have these questions. Yes, I know what the Bible teaches about biblical sexual ethics, but I don't know what it looks like to apply those truths in all kinds of scenarios is what the questions came in. And one of the verses that often gets quoted that leads to more confusion and less clarity is actually Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So let's look at verses 19 through 23 uh, together this morning. So verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those on the outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. It goes on in verse 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, one of the dangers of pulling some scripture out is not understanding the context that they're written. So let me give you a little uh, Cliff Notes context of what's going on here in chapter nine. So Paul's basically saying, hey, 
I, I want to talk to you about my willingness to lay aside my rights as a citizen. I want to talk to you about my willingness to lay aside some freedoms that I have, some personal comforts, my willingness to lay aside traditions, religious traditions, uh, in an effort to share the gospel and build relationships with Jesus Christ, the willingness to lay aside our rights. Paul said, hey, I've got all kinds of citizenship rights. I'm willing to forego those. But if it means winning an audience to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, we're still called to do that, right? That our ultimate allegiance is Christ over country and our true citizenship is in heaven is what the Bible teaches. And so Paul's modeling that for us. What does that uh, look like? And so what, what do we understand? So Paul's basically telling the Corinthian church, he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm submitting myself voluntarily to some personal hardships, some rights, some comforts, some things that are comforting me, religious traditions. I, I'm willing to lay those things aside because if I hold on to them, it's going to forfeit me an opportunity to share the gospel with other people. It's going to be a barrier for evangelism is what he's describing. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about, hey, uh, I've got a right to be married. I don't, I don't have to be single to be faithful to God's call in my life. So he says, I'm willing to forgo that, verse 5. Uh, he goes on later and says, hey, I've got a right that workers of the gospel should be supported by folks who are laboring in the gospel with them. And so Paul says, I've got a right to receive compensation as a minister of the gospel. But in verses 6 through 12, he said, I'm willing to lay that right aside so that no one can uh, wonder about what my motives are compared to these false teachers called the super apostles in that context. Now, here, here's what Paul did not mean. Paul did not mean that he was willing to compromise with the, with the truth of Scripture in an effort to gain an audience with an unbelieving world. Some people have heard Paul's statement to say, well, I've become all things to all people as an excuse to compromise our convictions. And, and somehow if I would compromise my convictions, the non-believers would be impressed with that or attracted to that. And somehow I could invite them into a gospel conversation. All right. So this is so important. So listen to this distinction. Paul never compromised the moral standards set forth in Scripture. Rather, he was willing to forego traditions and personal rights and familiar comforts and in order to reach any audience, Jewish or non-Jewish. There's a lot of debate, a lot of angst about evangelism. Let me just put this as clear as I can. God's strategy for you to evangelize the world uh, does not involve sin. And so if you have to sin or compromise to gain an audience, then you've compromised the gospel message on the very front end by the example that you're providing. So Paul's not saying that. I had a guy one time, he said, hey, we're going to uh, hire a pastor. This is a large church, very large church. He said, we're going to hire a pastor. And he said, we're going to hire a guy. So I'm going to ask you a question. Um, he said, you know, he said, we're going to hire this guy. And, and he went through divorce. And he said, I have different feelings about that. What are your feelings about that? And, and so I kind of walked through biblically. Here's what I think the scripture teaches. Here's where I think the church has leaned too heavily on tradition. Here's exegetically what those verses mean. And we kind of talked through that. And I said, what's your reason? And here's what he said. He said, well, we kind of did the math. And about 53% of Americans have been divorced. And so we think he'll relate to a greater percentage of people in our church. It gives him a greater audience. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, according to statistics, the overwhelming majority of men in America uh, dabble in or are enslaved to pornography. Does that mean if I get involved in pornography, I'm going to gain a greater audience for the gospel? 
He said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. I said, I'm the smartest person you've ever known. <laughs> that, that's not what Paul's saying when he says, hey, I became all things to all men. In other words, I dabbled in anything. I compromised my convictions with the hope that somehow that would be attractive. Listen, what's attractive to the world, to Christians, is not where we're alike. It's where we're different. And I don't mean weird, by the way, all right? That we love those who persecute us. We bless those who persecute us. We love our enemies. We serve instead of look to be served. Those are the things that make us distinct in the world. And so what we do see Paul modeling, though, in this passage is starting where people are spiritually. He says, hey, I, I know you've got some false gods. He, he didn't affirm that belief in those false gods. He just said, here's where your, the starting point is spiritually. So I'm going to meet you where you are spiritually. And I'm going to on-ramp that to share the gospel with Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important? Here's why, and you've heard me say this a lot. It is nonsensical to expect non-Christians to hold to Christian values. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Do you know why there's an erosion of Christian values in our culture? Because every generation, there's a rapidly declining percentage of Christians in that generation. If you want more Christian values, you need more Christians in a culture living out those Christian values. And collectively, that culture will skew towards. And so the answer to that is not retreating from the culture. To some Christians, it's not activism. The answer is evangelism. But you do not have to compromise your convictions to be a public witness for Jesus Christ. Paul never modeled that. He said, hey, I'll lay aside my rights as a citizen. I'll lay aside my traditions. I'll lay aside personal comforts. But I will not compromise the gospel in order to share the gospel. So, so in all these situations, what I do, how do I relate, you know, work or this person in my circle. So let me just give you five questions this morning to use as filters. All right, you don't know what to do. Here's kind of five questions to use as filters under the banner of wisdom. All right, so, so question, or number one is this. Is an individual or organization asking you to openly agree with or participate in sin or asking you to do something that you cannot do in faith? And if that's true, then hear me this morning. Sinning is never the solution to a moral dilemma for a Christian. Sinning is never the solution to a moral dilemma uh, for a Christian. So they're asking me to sin, participate in sin, agree with sin, or they ask me to do something that may not be outright sin, but it violates my conscience, and therefore I can't do it in faith. And Paul said, hey, if you can't do it in faith, then to you it's sin. Talk about offering meat to idols. So, so here's the second thing. Uh, are you behaving when you're interacting with people who disagree with you? Are you behaving as if scolding, shaming, or shunning can change someone's heart? Have you ever seen anyone scolded or shamed or shunned into the kingdom of God? I have not. But I've watched lots of Christians try to behave that way, right? Remember what the Bible says? It was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. On the issue of sexuality, many years ago, Billy Graham was asked by a reporter... He said, I've heard you openly teach that the Bible says uh, homosexuality is a sin. He said, Dr. Graham, he said, what would you do if one of your children told you they were gay? And Billy Graham said, well, I would go out of my way to make sure that that child knows uh, that I love them even more. Folks, let me share something with you. Loving people whose lifestyle you do not agree with is exactly what Jesus did for you when he found you. 
Loving people unconditionally is not the same as agreeing with their choices holistically. We've got to get that right as biblical Christians in our culture. I can love people that I don't affirm or agree, and I can love you and serve you and come alongside of you. I can uh, seek justice when you're experiencing injustice. I can do all those things without ever agreeing with any of the choices or life that you're living, because that's what Christ did for me. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, this is in my notes, this is all free, I'm just rolling, amen? In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve destroyed their covenant relationship with God, who went looking for whom? God pursued sinners to initiate reconciliation. And when he found him, he didn't agree and say, well, it's okay, it's totally fine. When he found him, he said, where are you? God knew fully where they were. God knows everything. God wanted to know if they knew where they were spiritually in relation to him. It's easy to love people who agree with you. It is supernatural to love those who disagree with you. And that's what makes Christianity distinct. We love our neighbors, gay, straight, black, white, English-speaking, non-English. We love our neighbors. Amen? We seek justice on behalf of those experiencing injustice, and we can do all those things and openly say, I think you're outside of God's good design for fill in the blank, whatever it is. Those are not mutually exclusive things. Number three, I'm kind of hit at this already. Am I willing to seek justice on behalf of those who are experiencing uh, injustice, even those who don't hold a biblical sexual ethics? Number four, are you treating others in your relationship exchange with them who you disagree with them? Are you treating them as the enemy or as the mission field? And even if they were your enemy, the Bible says, I'm to what? Love my enemies. And here's the last one. Are you tempted to water down or withhold the truth in an effort to build or retain a relationship. The Bible says clearly in John chapter eight, verse 32, it is the truth that sets people free. And so I have to love people unconditionally and share the truth unapologetically in a kind, convictional kind of way. That's what it looks like to be grace and truth, salt and light in a culture set against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby said this, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. When the Bible talks about biblical standards of communication in the book of Ephesians. It says you're to speak the truth in love. If what you say is not truthful, because you're afraid how it's gonna come across, it doesn't meet God's standard. If what you say is not loving, it doesn't meet God's standards. It is truth in love is what the Bible requires. And if you forego that, you cannot... Uh, Expect an unrighteous course of action to expect uh, or guarantee a righteous outcome. Now, here's the good news. That was the longest answer today, all right? So, some of you doing the math. There's four questions. We're, you know, so. Number two, this will be a little quicker. Number two, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Here's the answer. We don't know. Next question. Now, this one doesn't affect the real day-to-day -day life you're living, like some of these other questions. I, I totally get that, but, but we look back and said, you know what, we didn't answer a single kind of Bible trivia question in all the series, and so let's put this one in here. Uh, so here's what we do know, ultimately. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is given by God in, uh, by inspiration. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
And so the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspired in the Greek, it literally means God breathed. And so ultimately the right answer is who wrote the book of Hebrews? God did. All right? But what human agent did he work through? Well, one early church scholar and theologian, Origen, said this. Regarding the book of Hebrews, only God knows. that. <laughs> That's what he said. Now, throughout church history, uh, there's a lot of scholars who would hold to the position that Paul was, in fact, uh, the author of Scripture. Now, maybe they just did the math, like, he wrote a lot, right? So clearly it has to be Paul. Well, here's the argument. Peter, who wrote to the Hebrews on a couple of occasions, once wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He said, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So Paul said, hey... There was, or Peter says, there were some writings to you from Paul. Was that the inspired writings of Hebrews or was that some other correspondence that wasn't inspired? Like Paul wrote more than two letters to the Corinthian church, but only two made it into the inspired canon of scripture. So maybe that's one of them. Uh, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone is a huge theme in the book of Hebrews. We know that was a huge theme of Paul's writing. So it'd be consistent with the topics that Paul was passionate about and written extensively out. A third thing uh, is to suggest that Paul may be the author of the book of Hebrews is the fact that Timothy in chapter 13, in the book of Hebrews, is mentioned by name. The only New Testament writer who ever mentions Timothy by name is the apostle Paul. Now, here's why there's some debate. The author is not explicitly stated. Now, this usually occurs in the salutation of Paul, usually does have a pattern of introducing himself in his other books, saying, I, the Apostle Paul, and kind of go, they don't do that. Uh, the style of writing is more sophisticated in nature than some of Paul's other uh, writings. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 3, that he received his revelations from another apostle. But Paul always said in all of his other writings that he received his revelations from the Lord Jesus himself. So that's why there's some debate. Here's what we're convinced of. Our pastor discussed this this week. If there's an Ask Anything series when we get to heaven, this question will be in there. Amen? So we're not totally sure, but could be Apostle Paul, but it might not be. So there's, there's your answer, right? Question number three. It's a great question. This is the real life we're living. Is there a difference between joy and happiness? The scripture talks about joy and happiness for both Christians and uh, non-Christians. Prior to the early 1900s, uh, those were seen as uh, interchangeable terms uh, in the Bible. But for the last 100 years or so of church history, that's kind of been called into question. That happiness is a worldly kind of thing and joy is a supernatural or spiritual uh, kind of thing. But here's what you realize when you study the scripture. The Bible lumps together words interchangeably like the following. Delight, blessedness, and gladness all to be used interchangeably. So somewhere along the way, someone took that reality and said, hey, I think this is a, a more temporal thing or, or this is uh, something totally else. Now, I will tell you this. There is a difference between a fleeting emotion based on circumstances and a settled confidence in God despite your circumstances. Those are two separate realities. But happiness does not always have to be the former. It doesn't always have to be a fleeting emotion. Now, full disclosure, when I first started ministry, um, I believed that and I probably taught that. And over the years that I've studied this, I've, I've changed my position. I had to submit myself to the authority of the text and say, I think here's really what's uh, teaching. Let me give you some scripture that shows you how these words are used uh, interchangeably. Psalm 92.4 says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work 
At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. Interchangeable concepts there in Psalm 92. Psalm 32, 1. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, for some of you, respond with a settled confidence in God, and for the rest of you, respond with a fleeting emotion, right? That doesn't even make sense. He's using those terms uh, interchangeably. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord with uh, your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies when the Lord sends them uh, against you. And so again, he's using those words joyful and glad interchangeably in the text. Jeremiah 31, 13. Then the young woman will rejoice with dancing while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation, and bring happiness out of grief. How do you get happiness out of the emotion of grief? Because you can do so when your happiness is rooted in the settled confidence of God who's at work despite your grief. They're used interchangeably there in these passages. So we see that uh, over all, all the time. Now, a couple last couple weeks, there have been lots of questions coming on heaven. And so we referenced a book that we would recommend to you called Heaven by an author named Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn also, in recent years, wrote a book called Happiness. And listen to what he said. Basically said, like a lot of us, I, I'd always been taught that these were separate, they weren't interchangeable in scripture, and so he said, I just want to do my own study, and here's what he concluded. He said, I studied over 100 uses of the word joy and happiness, both in the Greek and Hebrew. And I also read authors like Spurgeon and Wesley, and in all my findings, he said, I could not find a distinction in the way that these words are used in scripture. He says, as a matter of fact, it only seems in recent church history over the last hundred years where people made joy seem spiritual and happiness seemed worldly. So in the Bible, these words are used interchangeable, even though there is a difference between a fleeting emotion based on circumstances and a settled confidence in God despite your circumstances, but happiness doesn't always have to be the former. Someone else uh, in that same question asked this. They said, are these experiences different for Christians and non-Christians? Acts 14, Paul mentions, he says, I give rain to produce food and gladness to both the Christians and non-Christians uh, he was addressing that day. So what does that mean? The Bible speaks and teaches of God's common grace where God is pouring out his blessing and his mercy on all of humanity despite the fact that we deserve God's wrath. And so everybody on the earth, both saved and unsaved, experience the common grace of God that God's pouring out through his mercy on all of humanity. That's God's common grace. Now, author David Murray references seven types of happiness. He said the six are available to everyone. Listen to the categories. Nature happiness. I don't know what that is, by the way. Like, I'm an avid indoorsman. I don't know what that is, right? I had to travel out of town, and I roughed it this week. What I roughed this week is when I went to the Hampton Inn, it was too much money, and so I stayed at the Holiday Inn. It was all right? Just, I don't know what nature, but there's nature. I guess you know, enjoy nature around you. Everybody can experience that. There's social happiness. There's vocational happiness. Uh, by vocational happiness, what it means every survey says whether you're saved or not, most people hate their jobs, all right? So... There's physical happiness, I feel good. There's intellectual happiness. There's humor happiness. So, hey, both Christians and non-Christians can laugh and have a good time. But, but here's what Murray writes in his work. Here's what he said. But there is a happiness only available to those who are following Jesus. This is spiritual happiness. And the only way this occurs 
is when a person's sins are forgiven and they're reconciled to God. We would call this the joy of knowing the Lord. That's why David said, oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Psalm 32.1 says, blessed or happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So there is a type of joy or happiness that is only available to those who know and love and experience Jesus Christ. And that's true on this side of eternity and it will be true on the other side of eternity as well. Because the non-Christian does not have joy waiting for them in eternity. What they have waiting for them is judgment. But the Bible says this in Psalm 1611, that in the fullness of God there is, or in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And when heaven, the great glory of heaven, is God himself, and when we're in his presence for all of eternity, the Bible says in his presence there is fullness of joy. That means in eternity for the Christian, there will be a fullness of joy that never ends, praise God, because we'll be in his presence. And so there is a difference. The Bible talks about that. Pastor and author John Piper said the Bible is indiscriminate. It's use of happiness, joy, satisfaction, and contentment, even though these may have different meanings uh, in culture. It's a good question. Last question. What is the eternal fate of someone that commits suicide? I don't know if every year I've been asked this question, but most years I've been asked this question. I've been a pastor for 20 plus years. I literally could not count to you how many times I've asked this question, how many times people have came to me and said, hey, uh, what about this? I was taught this, I heard this, I got a friend who believes this, those kind of things. So I feel like I've answered that uh, exhaustively, but, but just, listen, just last week, I taught at our Mason campus. And at the end of the service, someone called me afterwards and said, hey, do you have just a second? Uh, we wanna ask you a, a question. And I said, sure. They said, I was talking to this person in my work context and they said that suicide is an unforgivable sin. What does our church believe? So I just was asked this question again last week. Now, to be clear, an unsaved person, no matter how they die, the Bible says will have hell as the eternal fate. So the question is really, does suicide cause a saved person to forfeit their salvation? Or put another way, what I've been asked, is it the unpardonable or unforgivable sin? Now, I'm gonna invite you to turn to another place in your Bible because I want you to see this for yourself. And Mark, and you know where it's at, so if someone asks you this question, uh, I'm gonna invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Now, there are several places in the Bible where unpardonable or unforgivable sin is addressed. So this is not the only place, but this is Matthew's account of where that issue is addressed. And as I read this, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to listen well. As I read these verses, I want you to listen for yourself and ask yourself, is there any mention directly or indirectly of suicide in this verse on the unpardonable sin? All right, so you listen with your own ears. So. He says, uh, Matthew 12, verses 31 32. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So it's unforgivable, it's unpardonable. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now, there's a lot of debate about what he's saying there, okay? And I've got my 
a position on that and, and why. And, and I don't think a Christian can ever, a true Christian can never commit the unpardonable sin. I don't have time to teach you that, why I think that is. But, but here's where there should be no debate. In this uh, passage, one of the parallel places in the Bible where it does talk about an unforgivable, unpardonable sin, with your own ears, is there any reference directly or indirectly to suicide? No. There is no reference to that. So case closed, right? So if it really is that simple, why is there so much confusion on this topic? Why is this continually a question that pastors get asked even last week? Well, let me tell you, I think there's two reasons why. Uh, number one is there's a misunderstanding of what actually gets a person into heaven. So if you're listening, say amen. You're not going to heaven based on how well you perform. You're going to heaven based on how well Jesus performed on your behalf. That's the gospel. It's your position in Christ, not your performance, that secures salvation. Jesus died to forgive the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And once I respond in saving faith, that forgiveness is appropriated or credited to my account for my past, present, and future sins. Praise God. Listen to this verse, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has quickened together with him, listen to this, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary us, and took it out of the way, nailing your sins to the cross. Listen to this verse, 1 John 2, 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Now, this is actually a place where the Greek is helpful in understanding, and the pastor's not just trying to prove that he went to seminary, all right? In the English translation, we just read the word forgiven, and automatically we think of our past as forgiven, right? But the original Greek language, in the original Greek, the word uh, translated forgiven is grammatically a perfect participle. And what that means is it's an event that occurred in the past, but its effects are continuing in the present and beyond. What does that mean? When God saved me, he redeemed my past. Praise God, he redeemed me from my sins of the present. And praise God, he redeemed me from the sins of my future. Then what he accomplished on the cross had a one-time effect that is an ongoing work for the forgiveness of sins. And so sometimes people don't understand that. They think, well, I'm I'm going to heaven based on, yeah, what Christ has done, but also what I do, and in that uh, suicide, I don't have a chance to ask for forgiveness, but here's what they don't understand. My forgiveness has already been accomplished on the work of the cross for my past, present, and future sins. Now, is it a sin in the sense that we've destroyed something willfully made in the image of God? Absolutely. Is it tragic in the sense that it is a permanent choice to a temporary problem? Absolutely. Is it an unpardonable sin theologically? Absolutely not, is what the Bible teaches. Now, there's a second reason for confusion, and it's the long-held historical position of the Roman Catholic Church that there are mortal sins. These are unforgivable, and they're called venial sins. These are forgivable sins. These are really bad. These are not so bad. And in that category, historically, uh, in that category, suicide has been a mortal sin or an unforgivable sin in historic Roman Catholic theology. Now, does every Catholic agree with that? No, they don't. Did John Paul II make some allowance for that? And they said, yes, he did. 
But is that the position historically of the Catholic Church? Uh, absolutely. I'll never forget several years ago, a lady was coming to our church. She doesn't go to church anymore, so don't look around. I'm like, who is that? And she said, I'm, I love the church. And I enjoy, like, I'm just learning so much. She said, I grew up in a you know, church faith tradition. It was, uh, they didn't really teach the Bible. We just kind of did. You know, I just, I'm learning so much. She said, but I want to meet with you before I join the church. I know it's a bigger church, and I know you're talking like, but I want to meet with you before I join the church. And I said, of course. And so we met, and she said, I said, well, what question do you have? She said, I want to ask you one question. She said, my son committed suicide. And she said, when he did, we've grown up our whole life in Catholic church. And when I went to our priest at our parish, I said, um, do you think he's in heaven? He said, he's not in heaven. As a matter of fact, you cannot hold the funeral here for a person who committed a mortal sin and they would not let her hold the funeral there. And she said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think what I think doesn't really matter, but I think what the Bible thinks matters a whole lot. And I pointed to the scriptures, and here's what the scripture says. I don't need to confess my sins to a priest because Jesus is my great high priest is what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't need a priest to offer up last rites, right? Because I've got a high priest. His name is Jesus. The entire book of Hebrews is written. The, what a great high priest he is who's interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7, uh, 25 says he always lives to intercede. And so the question is, well, people who committed suicide, they didn't have a chance to ask for forgiveness, so they can't be forgiven. Listen, the, Christ is interceding on our behalf. There is no greater intercession then Christ himself interceding on our behalf. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, my sins have already been paid for, we already hit this, but I want you to think about this. When Jesus said in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. If my future sins were not forgiven in that moment, then in fact, it was not finished and another sacrifice had to be offered. But Jesus said clearly, it is finished. Past sin, present sin, future sin. And finally, let me remind you the promise of Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, unqualified, doesn't give any disclaimers, this type of death, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, or death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, folks, it is a tragic thing. It is, a, again, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It is a sin in the sense that it's destroying someone made in the image of God whose life has deep value and inherent dignity. But I just want to be so clear. The main thing when it comes to eternity is not how a person dies. The main thing is who they belong to when they did. And for everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ this morning, the only words you'll hear on the other side of eternity are, welcome home. Jesus really did pay it all. And if you don't know him, I'd like to give you a chance to receive him today for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you bow your head this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you a very simple question. Have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins?
Is there a time and a place or a season in your life where you recognize that compared to the life of Jesus, you're a sinner who falls short? And you have confessed that sin. You've repented or had a desire to turn from that sin. And you receive Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then hear me this morning. Jesus said, I came so that you may know you have eternal life. And so right where you're at this morning, right in your seat, you can pray right now, confess your sins, repent of them, and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can be saved today, right now, in your seat by faith in Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins? For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, as we walk through these questions a few weeks, I just want to encourage you with this thought. You're not always going to have the right answer. You're not always going to get it right, but be encouraged by this truth. Even when you get it wrong, God is pleased with the heart that desires to please him. Father, we're grateful that in our shortcomings, our fallible wisdom, our sinful motivations and actions, God, that the grace of Jesus Christ is available to every person this morning. And so, Lord, it's my sincere prayer that not a person leaves here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God, for those who do know Jesus Christ, it's my sincere prayer today that they would live this week with a full assurance that he is for us, he is with us, and he is interceding for us. And so may we live with the hope of the gospel this week. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.